I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist. With me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Bridget Walsh about her historical novel, The Tumbling Girl. Bridget was born in London to Irish immigrant parents. She studied English literature and was an English teacher for 23 years before leaving the profession to pursue her writing. In 2019, she won the UEA Little Brown Award for Crime Fiction. Bridget now lives in Norwich with her husband and her two dogs. In this episode, we discuss writing a historical working class character who pushes against the constraints of the era, what it's like working with a great indie press, and Bridget's advice to anyone who thinks it's too late to write their novel. But first, here's Bridget with an excerpt from The Tumbling Girl. Temperance meetings always left Annie desperate for a drink and she knew a gin house that would still be open at this time of night. She checked the time. Minnie Ward would be long gone, no chance of running into her again, nosy little madam. She crept quietly down to the basement and slipped out of the house, leaving the back door on the latch, just like they'd asked her to that night. She moved swiftly, ducking in and out of alleyways and side streets, her feet so familiar with the route she could have walked there in her sleep. She reached the gin house, a foul-smelling hut sandwiched between a brothel and the house of a night soil man. Scraping through her pockets for a few coins, she handed them over with the bottle to the old crone who ran the place, trying desperately not to touch her calloused hands with their ragged, grimy fingernails. She waited impatiently for the bottle to be refilled, then took a long draught, her hands shaking as she slaked her thirst. Temperance, Annie reminded herself, not teetotalism. Temperance. It wasn't that she couldn't have a drink, just that she needed to drink a little less. And she had been. She'd been doing very well, in fact, until a few weeks ago, when events had sent her hurtling back to the bottle. And really, what had she done after all? left a door open, gone to bed and pulled the pillow over her head so she wouldn't hear nothing. That fella, the one with the voice like warm treacle, only three fingers on his left hand, he told her he just needed to get inside the house. 
take something from Mr Winter's room. A joke, he'd said. Just a little joke. Hi Bridget, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on me today to discuss your debut novel, The Tumbling Girl. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. So will you start by telling us what The Tumbling Girl is about? Okay, so it's set in London in 1876 um, and it starts with uh, Minnie Ward, who's my heroine, um, and she is a sketch and songwriter for a somewhat down-at-heel musical, The Variety Palace. And right at the start of the novel, um, we learn that her best friend has been found hanged under the Adelphi Arches, which was a particularly unsavoury bit of London down near the embankment. And the police are treating it as suicide, so they're not investigating, but Minnie and Rose's mother, Ida, aren't having it. So they hire a private investigator, Albert Easterbrook, um, to find out what's happened to Rose. And um, very early on, Minnie insinuates herself into the investigation um and they they go the the novel kind of takes them from you know very elite and exclusive gentlemen's clubs all the way to that kind of you know the cliche of the seedy underbelly of london um there are quite a few murders along the way um but the main thing is that minnie and albert start to discover that they like each other and they get on but there's something from minnie's past that is stopping her moving forward really um and it's kind of the dynamic between the two of them is very important in the book as well mm -hmm. i will talk a little bit about their dynamic in a moment but i'd just love to hear a little bit about where this book began because i know you've got a phd in victorian domestic murder which is a very specific topic i was wondering <laughs> <laughs> i was wondering whether the novel began there I guess in your reading for your PhD or or where where did it start where did this idea begin? I it did start with that because part of the research for that was I read about a lot of actual murder cases um which and I focused on ones that I just found personally really interesting so I um did I enrolled on the MA in creative fiction the crime fiction strand at UEA and initially, I was going to write a book based on the case of Adelaide Bartlett, who was um, a real woman who was the first person to be tried for killing somebody with chloroform. And I was going to write a kind of fictionalised account of that. I had this idea I was going to write something really writerly and serious and hefty. And um, and then I quite early on thought, actually, do you know what? I think I want to write a series. And I thought if I'm going to write a series, that my focus then needs to be my detectives rather than the killers. Um, and I wanted to put a woman at the heart of the book, um, a working class woman. was That was really important to me. But I thought I'm setting it in the 19th century. There's a limit to what she'll be able to do and where she'll be able to go. So I thought she needs a sidekick. And then it all just kind of took off from there. And I'd read quite a lot for my PhD about Victorian theatre. And I thought it's just a great setting because it's somewhat shambolic, the Variety Palace. So it's a potential for some humour. And over the course of the series, if it develops in the way I hope it will, it's a great opportunity to bring in a lot of different characters and play around with things. Mm, it's the ideal setting, isn't it? Because you can bring in some quite 
quirky performers or you know unusual characters that we wouldn't necessarily see in kind of ordinary historical crime which are and I you know I think the fact that you've done this PhD means that you now have an endless uh casebook to work from so whenever you're feeling like what is my next murder going to be I'm sure you've got loads of cases that you can look through one thing I loved about your novel and it's so vivid and rich and there's so many like precise little bits of slang or words that I can you can just tell that you are completely immersed in Victorian culture and language it must be quite difficult when you know a topic so well and you love a kind of era so well at what point then do you step back from your research and go okay it's time to write do you kind of dip back and forth do you go okay well I really need to know about um, a particular type of shoe so I need to go and look that up now or do you just kind of tend to write it all and then go back and fill things in how does it how does your research process work it's a bit of both I mean I I never feel like I've stopped researching um so I mean literally today I was thinking I I need this a, a building I thought I need a fancy building so I went and uh, I've got this book called Great Houses of London and I was just going through that and thinking oh yeah I can use that and I can use that and so it's it never really stops, I think. So sometimes the research triggers an idea and I think that's so good, I've got to put that in. And then other times I think, right, okay, that's just something I need to go away and find out about that. And the hardest thing I think is that m most of that research has to get left off the page, otherwise you're just overloading the reader. So I, I'm doing research all the time, but most of it never makes its way into the books. How do you know when you've done too much on the page or is that something that other people are better at spotting than you? I think it's other people. So it's giving it to people. So I've got a great team of beta readers who are really honest about what's working and what isn't. And they will say things like, you know, info dump, too much, got to strip this down. Or you've got to filter it through a bit more. You've got this great chunky paragraph that no one's going to wade through. But then equally, sometimes there'll be things that I've sort of absorbed and I I forget that not everyone would know that. So I've had people say, you know, I don't know what that is. You need to explain that a little bit more. So it's other people. I, th I think if it was only me, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what was what was too much or what was not enough. Mm, yeah, well, I think your novel has the perfect balance and it's so full of life because your characters are they just feel very real and I mean we've got to talk about Minnie let's talk about <laughs> Minnie tell us about Minnie where did the idea for her come from because I feel like she she was like your starting point and she just kind of sings off the page so where did the idea for her come from I suppose she was kind of inspired by my auntie Mary who everyone called Minnie um and Minnie never my auntie Minnie never married, she never had children. She was just amazing. She was like willing to, to try things and and she was kind of a real force of nature. And so the, the name kind of came from Minnie, but also some of the ideas about her. And I wanted her, I didn't want her Minnie as a as a working class, not particularly affluent woman. I didn't want her to be disadvantaged by that. I wanted her to to kind of take control of her world and stride through it. And of course the musical gives her that opportunity because 
it was a world where women could be financially independent. Um, and so it, putting her in that world, she knows that world and she kind of owns that world, really. Um, and it's Albert, really, who's a bit more adrift, I think. And weirdly enough, when I first started writing the book, um, Albert and Minnie were married and Minnie was virtually mute. I wrote this <laughs> scene and she hardly said a word. And um, I remember on the course, my tutor said, you know, whose story is this? He said, because it feels to me like it's Albert's story. And I went, no, it's not. It's Minnie's story. This is Minnie's story. And he said, well, then make it her story. And yeah, then I was just able to kind of put her centre stage. And she she kind of, I, I feel like I haven't created her. I feel like she's just sort of allowed me to to make contact with her and and appear on the page oh I love that uh you, you mentioned that you kind of invented Albert as this almost well the sidekick character but you almost needed him because there'd be certain things that Minnie wouldn't be able to do was there ever any point where I mean I I guess a Vict you, you know we, we think of the Victorian era and we think of maybe we have an image in our head of kind of almost uh, oppressed women and, and obviously certain rights that women didn't have at that point. Were there points where you kind of felt like Minnie was held back by her time or did you feel like you wanted to kind of push against the kind of boundaries or the barriers that there would be of that time? Yeah, I think I wanted to push against them a bit. And I think, I think Minnie wants to as well. I think Minnie doesn't, Minnie she's she's a realist and she's very bright but she doesn't want to believe that there are things she can't do um and sometimes that does get her in a bit of a pickle because she goes striding into situations and then you know she suddenly thinks oh god this was not a brilliant idea um but yeah I think I wanted her to be pushing against the constraints a bit and against against the expectations that people have of her um, and the fact that, you know, people think, oh, you know, Albert's a bit of a toff. Um, you know, I think we, we think we know how this is going to end up, you know, and sh and she's the one who's who's resisting him and who's saying when nothing of that nature is going to be happening. Um, so, yeah, I think and I suppose I kind of wanted as well. I mean, the novel, there are there are fantasy elements of the novel, not that it's set in some you know made up world but in that it is a kind of fantasy version of Victorian London where where Minnie has got more agency. Mm. But I think that's probably what we as modern readers enjoy reading more I mean we don't yeah. necessarily want to see her held back um, but let's talk about Albert then because they do form this kind of unlikely partnership but he's I guess the, the yin to her yang in some ways. <laughs> How did you build that kind of chemistry between them? Because particularly in their dialogue, they have some great kind of back and forth conversations. So how did you kind of build and develop that chemistry? I think Albert was a tricky one for me to write because I always had this idea of him as being, um, you know, he's very kind of solid. He's kind of, he he grounds her, I think, in lots of ways. Um, but initially when I started writing him, people were going, oh, he's, you know, he's a bit of a prig and he's, you know, he's a bit stiff and he's, and I was thinking, yeah, he, but he's kind of meant to be a bit stiff. It's, it's, he starts to 
to loosen up once he gets to know Minnie um, because he's 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 brought up um, financially privileged but in a very loveless home um, and he's never really fit in anywhere. He becomes a police officer, which means his parents no longer speak to him because it's seen as kind of, you know, a disgraceful thing for him to have gone into. He never quite fit in as a police officer. Now he's a private detective. And it's really only when he gets to know Minnie and they 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 rub up against each other all the time. And he's got a bit of a Galahad complex as well. I think he he wants to try and protect women um, in the loveliest of ways, not that he wants to kind of limit them or um, restrict them. But but then he encounters Minnie and everything he's trying to do, she's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, so I love writing that. I mean, dialogue is my favourite thing to write. Um, and I love writing Albert and Minnie and Tansy as well. I'm very fond of Tansy. So, <laughs> so did you constantly have to think of ways that they were going to clash or at least kind of have differing opinions on certain things to kind of keep that, um, I guess that, well, not fire, but just kind of keep that energy between them. Yeah, I think so. And I think, and occasionally Minnie is, um, she's quite rude to him. Um, and again, that is sort of me perhaps stretching the, the boundaries of reality a bit. Some of the ways she speaks to him, um, you know, I think he finds quite bewildering at times, but I think she's enjoying that sparring as well. I think initially he's not quite sure how to take her, um, but as as the time goes on, and particularly as it develops over, um, you know, subsequent novels, which are in the pipeline, um, he starts to understand a lot more about her. Um, but he is, he's very, he's drawn to her, but he kind of doesn't really understand why he is. I think she's naturally kind of charismatic. We're all drawn to her. So it's understandable that he falls into that trap as well. I wanted to ask you about this book being the first in a series, because I'm wondering kind of how much you have to have already planned out before you start writing, whether you're someone that has kind of the idea for each book planned out individually. And then you have like a, especially particularly for Minnie and Albert, I mean, do you have a kind of overall arc for them like do you think do you think okay well this is going to happen for them in book one but in by book three we'd like to see them here how does he how do you all work it out yeah it's it's a bit of both so I think for them there's an arc there are certain things that I think yeah I think this is probably going to happen in book three and I think this might happen in book four and in terms of the plots of the novels and the cases and the murders they get involved with um, that is sort of open to change. I had this idea of what I was going to write book two about, and then I was doing some some research during lockdown, and I came across um, a real-life event, and I thought, oh, this, uh, yeah, okay, let's scrap what I was going to do in book two, let's do this instead. So, but I tend to think about the books. So, like, book three is about spiritualism um, and kind of... Um, kind of manipulation of of women um book four at the moment is looking like it's going to be um about the victorian fondness for freak shows um so i tend to have sort of an idea about something about victorian life that i think i think it's going to be loosely based around that um but i'm not 
too rigid on it and if something interesting pops its head up then I think okay that's yeah that that should go in I like that so your writing process is a bit more fluid then you're kind of quite happy to sit there and just let it happen you don't have a kind of okay this is happening in chapter one and this is happening in chapter two no, I really wish I did because it made life <laughs> so much easier. Um, I I like to think I'm a real plotter, but there is an element of pantser in there as well. So I, and also the other thing is, um, my husband and I walk our dogs every morning. We go out for about an hour and a half, and we talk about the books, and and then suddenly my husband will go, "Oh, I know what would be interesting," and sometimes you're thinking don't say that because now I've got to do that or I've got to undo that um but no I'm I'm don't stick to it too religiously I try and plot out the first part I always know how the book's beginning and end, begin and end um and then in the middle it gets a bit fluid sometimes mm. I think if you have a great idea or if you think oh that would that would really work or I'd like to put them in that situation and see how they react then I I can't then think, well, that wasn't what I originally planned. I just think, okay, we've got to go with that then. Mm. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
So what aspect then, because I mean, I would, I mean, this is me talking who doesn't write crime, but when I think of crime writers, I think, okay, really smart plotting and, you know, twists and turns and working all those kind of, you know, red herrings out and all that. And I'm thinking all these sort of strings on a board with post-it notes and, and things like that. But clearly that's not the case. It's all stored up there in your head. Um, so what for you then is the hardest part or the most challenging part of kind of writing in general? Do you know, I know this is going to sound mad because I'm a crime writer, but it's the crime. It's that <laughs> it's that thing of um, thinking, okay, what happens? And, and the whole detecting element of it. I'm thinking, okay, what would Minnie and Albert do? How What stages would they go through to find this out? How am I going to withhold that information from the reader, but not withhold so much that they're going to get really annoyed at the end and go, well, there's no way we could have worked that out. Um, and I do sometimes think <laughs> I wish I wasn't a crime writer, but um, that I find hard. And the other bits, you know, the dialogue and things going on in the in the Variety Palace and all of that, I find, you know, I really enjoy. But it's the thing where I think, OK, the, and, and it's, it's not stretching credibility. So sometimes I have these ideas and I think, oh, yeah, they could do that and then they could do that. And you think, yeah, but nobody would do that, you know, and it's it's trying. My agent always says you don't want to be able to see the strings. And occasionally I think, oh, no, the, those strings are really visible and I need to bury that and change it in some way. So I do. I've never had the strings on a, on a board. I do have little note cards and sometimes I move them around and play around with them. But. It, that is the hardest bit, keeping the reader's interest and thinking, I want to know who who's doing this um, and not giving it away too soon, I find tricky. But I, I'm i not somebody who, you know, you get these crime novels where there's this like astonishing twist mm. um, and you're just thinking, I'd never have seen that coming. I, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to make it that you, the killer is out of sight for most of the novel mm. to be honest though sometimes those twists are so stupid mm. that you get to the end of the book and you're like i've just wasted five hours of my life reading this yeah. i'm just gonna put that out there now because i did get to a point in my life when i was i all i was reading was thrillers with big twists because every, at one point every book was the next gone girl oh, and yeah. i was forever trying to find the next gone girl um and i was just reading like some terrible but you know terrible books with with really awful twists where you like you would say you, you want to put the book down afterwards and think that would never happen yeah I think that's it I've read a few where I thought well the reason I didn't guess that was because it's just ludicrous yeah. you know it it you know you might as well say oh the dog did it you know yeah. so so I mean when it's done well it's absolutely brilliant mm. um you know and you do think wow I do not know how they manage that but yeah I don't I don't like reading stuff where the twist is just there mm. so that you the publisher can say oh it's got this great twist you think well yeah but it has to sort <laughs> of make sense within the universe of the novel I think yeah absolutely and I suppose as well not only are you thinking of kind of plausibility you're also thinking I don't know whether you do this but you kind of when you've finished a draft or when you've finished kind of a version of the book do you kind of go back and kind of place bits kind of in retrospectively or do you feel like you not, don't need to do that very often no um I do quite often do that and particularly um there was something to, I can't say anything about but in the tumbling girl there is something that 
quite a significant thing that changed as the result of a dog walk with my husband. Um, and with that, I did, I had virtually finished the book and I had to go right back again and start laying new breadcrumbs um, and, and inserting little bits and pieces along the way. Um, and in um, the third book, which I'm editing at the moment, I've I've changed completely who the killer is and I had kind of got to the end of the book, but it makes sense to change it. So again, that goes, but I kind of like all that. I like the editing side. I like it when you've got a whole manuscript and then you think, right, now I've really got to make it work. It's sort of, there's something weirdly pleasurable about that. I'm with you on that on that front. The editing part is my favorite part. I like yeah. having I like having written. I there's the it's the writing for the first time that I'm like, ugh. Yeah. Do I have to do this really. <laughs> I gotta put this down on paper and know it's gonna be rubbish and have to delete thousands of words. But yeah, yeah. the bit afterwards is the fun bit. Um I'd love to hear a bit more about your kind of journey to this point then, because I know you were an English teacher for over 20 years. Um, what made you take the plunge to seek getting publication? Had you always been writing novels or attempting to write and thinking, you know, this is my big dream one day? It was my big dream one day. I, I wrote a bit. I wrote bits and pieces here and there. Um, and then um, we had um, a kind of a perfect storm of family illnesses in 2015, which I won't go into but like um, it happens for everybody, there are those moments in life that kind of focus the mind and you think, you know, if not now, when? So in 2016, I enrolled on something called the Six Month Novel, which is an online novel writing course with Urban Writers Retreat. And it does what it says on the tin, you write a novel in six months. And I partly did it because I thought, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this and then I'll know and I can put this writing idea to bed and think it's not for me. So I wrote that novel um, on the number 13 bus going to and from work um, and I loved it. And I mean, the novel is not good, um, but I did. I wrote 80,000 words and um, I discovered that I really enjoyed it and that then gave me the incentive to when I saw the MA in crime fiction I thought oh my god this is just made for me this course and so my husband and I uh, moved and we downsized um, so that I could stop working Um, and yeah we took a kind of a big leap but you know I think you know, you just, you have to go for things sometimes. And I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? It doesn't quite work out, but at least you tried. Um, and I I never want to be somebody who looks back at the end of their life and thinks, you know, I wanted to do that. And I never did because I was too afraid. So that's kind of how it evolved, really. And now I, I just can't believe my luck now that I get to, to do this thing that I I absolutely love doing it and I it just seems like such a gift to be able to spend my days now writing about these characters. Mm, absolutely. So after that MA then, did you have a manuscript that you were that was ready to send out to agents or were you um I mean were you querying with uh, the tumbling girl or something else? What was what was you what were you kind of working towards at that point? Yeah, well, the great thing about that, Emma, is you have to write a whole novel. 
Oh, wow. Um, okay. So um, it's it really marks it out from a lot of others. So um, so I had a whole novel because I had to to submit it. And I was just I was one of those sickeningly lucky people in this element of the journey, because at the end of the MA, they have um, you produce an anthology of people's work. And we had a reading of it at a pub in Norwich. Um, and Isabel Dixon, who's my agent, turned up for that and heard me read and said, can I see the whole manuscript? Um, and and she signed me with Blake Friedman. And, you know, I know that, that you know, a lot of your listeners will be out there thinking right now, I really hate Bridget. But it <laughs> happened that the, re the rest of the journey wasn't that straightforward. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, that was the great thing about the course. I think if I'd finish the course with you know 20,000 words I'd still be plowing my way through it now but you had to produce a whole novel and it was and most a large amount of it had been workshopped within the group so it'd been through a lot of pairs of eyes um and it you know it still needed more work it wasn't you know ready for publication but it was you know it was really useful to be able to say yes I have an entire manuscript that you can read Hmm. Well, if they hate you, Bridget, they probably hate me as well because my story was very similar. Um, but that's the beauty of well, beauty and the horror, I suppose, of trying to find an agent because there are so many different ways and so many factors involved. Like you say, a bit of luck. But I, I'm not, you know, we're not going to say it's just luck because there's got to be talent there, otherwise she wouldn't have signed you. Um, but also your perseverance and hard work in in finishing a novel because I'm sure there's a lot of people there's supposed thousands of people out there that say I want to write a book and then they never finish it so I mean yeah. finishing it is is part of the problem as well I just wondered whether you had any advice for people who maybe thought it's kind of too late for them to start or they've got you know they've they've had their career they've you know they've worked for most of their life and they're thinking well what's the point I'm not you know a 20 year old just fresh out of university how am I going to get this ever going to get this dream that I want what would be your advice for them I think you've got to go for it I mean I'm 58 and my first novel has just been published and I'm not already famous for something else I'm not a massive presence on social media um you know I was told it was difficult to sell historical crime um I think you have to go for it and I you know, I think it is easy to kind of think, oh, that isn't going to happen or I'm too old or I'm I'm not this or I'm not that. But it, it can happen if you write the book you want to write. I think that's the thing. If you're trying to second guess the market, if you're thinking, oh, this is big at the moment, so I'll write a book a bit like that. I I don't think that's a brilliant idea. I, I wrote this, even though I knew I was told by lots of people, it is really tricky to sell historical crime this was the book I wanted to write. And, you know, when um, when it was taking a while to sell, I did try and write other things. I did try and write something set in the present day and, and nothing kind of ignited me the way this book did. So I, I, I think it's never too late. I mean, Bonnie Garmus, who wrote Lessons in Chemistry, was she, was she 64 when that book was published? You know, Mary Wesley is the other one that people often quote. She was 70, I think, when the Chamomile Lawn was published. So, you know, the if you love writing, just go for it. Do it. You know, you don't have to do a master's. You don't have to spend money on courses. 
just write the book you really want to write and do lots of dog walking where you can work out your plot problems definitely <laughs> <laughs> i hope your husband's getting a big credit at the in the acknowledgements at the end of your book yeah yeah he is <laughs> <laughs> So tell us about um, working with Gallic Books then, because they're an independent publisher. We've I've had um, Heather Parry on, who wrote um, Orpheus Blood's a Girl, which is, is uh, was one of my favourite books last year, and I think they're a brilliant publisher. So tell us about working with them. What's that been like? They've been wonderful. Um, I have no point of comparison, but I can't think it would have been any better with anyone else. So they are small, um, which suits me down to the ground so you know I whenever I email I get a response really quickly um you know Claire who's the head of marketing emailed me this morning just to say look you know it can be really weird um in the immediate aftermath of publication just checking in are you okay you know is everything all right um and you know I, I don't know what it would be like to be published by Penguin Random House but I I would rather be you know a slightly um, larger fish in a smaller pond um, than get lost somewhere else. They've just been great and they're really excited about the book. They've done such a beautiful job on the cover. Um, but I feel like I've been involved in that all the way along. And I've heard stories from other friends who are writers, you know, that they've the, the cover is just decided and they're told that's what you're having. That's what the market will respond to. Um, and Gallic have been wonderful. They've just, I feel, I mean, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but it does feel like we're sort of part of a family and and that we're all wanting the book to succeed. That's the amazing thing is when you think that there's this team of people who all want the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, they know what they're doing. They've got the book, you know, in front of some really, um, really very useful um, eyes and you know they they've hired a publicist in the UK and one in the US for the book um and it's people are, are getting to see it which is the main thing and I think there's a bit of a feeling that you know unless you're with a really big publisher with a massive marketing budget your book will just disappear um and I think hopefully this is proving that that isn't the case Mm-hmm. well as I said to you earlier from an outsider's point of view I think they're doing a fantastic job and um the cover's gorgeous and they seem to be fully behind you and I've seen that you've had some kind of great reviews and and write-ups and things so um a big thumbs up to them yeah definitely. I was wondering what your kind of gem I mean we've heard a little bit about your kind of positive experience with publishing with them what it's been like but I was wondering whether there's anything you think has maybe surprised you or you found more difficult than you were expecting, whether that be kind of emotionally or practically? And what would your advice be to kind of next year's cohort of debut novelists be? What they're they're just about to be published. What would your what would your advice be to them? I think I'm I'm gonna use the advice that um my friend Emma Styles gave to me. So she wrote, has written a novel that came out last year called No Country for Girls. Um, and she wrote a lovely endorsement for me for The Tumbling Girl. And I messaged her and said, you know, have you got any advice? And she said, your job is to write the best possible novel you can. And everyone else's job, everyone else is doing the other side of that. And I think that's the thing. I'm, um, I'm used to kind of controlling every aspect of my life. 
And it's kind of weird to hand over this really precious thing to a group of people and saying, I'm going to trust you to do it. But I think you have to because they know what they're doing and they are able to achieve things that, you know, you possibly can't. Um, I I think you have to sort of hold on tight. It's a, it is quite a surreal experience. Um, and when you first see the book published, when you first hold it in your hand, it's all very, I mean, I honestly, there were times when I thought I am having an out of body moment here. Um, but I think it is trusting other people that they know what they're, and they want to sell your book. You know, they're not, they haven't taken it and spent money on it to, to lose it somewhere in the back of a warehouse. They want to sell it. So, so trust them and ask questions because a good publisher, you know, I, I knew, I knew nothing, nothing at all. Um, and they have just been great every time I'm saying, like, I know this might seem really obvious, but you know, how does this work? Don't be afraid to do that because they know the answers and they're, they're happy to help you. Mm. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Um, um, have to give a shout out to Emma Stiles. She's a a friend of the show and friend of mine. And yeah, she's uh she's just been nominated. Well, she's been shortlisted for a brilliant prize as well. So um, obviously, and did you do the MA with her? Because I know she did. The she same. was in the year below me. Right. Okay. So it was a two year course, so we we overlapped <laughs> usually in pubs. Um, <laughs> but now Emma's just one, and the book is great, and it's now starting to get the recognition it so richly deserves um no she's she's fantastic yeah some great names that come out of uh, uea and mm. everything i've heard about their courses just sound amazing so um yeah very very envious of anyone that's done a, a course at uea um bridget i'd love for you to finally finish off by telling us teasing us you you've told us a little tease about the next couple of books in the series so Please give us a little bit more. Tell us what's coming up for our characters. Okay, so the second book is called The Innocence, and that, I believe, is coming out in March next year. Um, so uh, not giving anything away, but at the start of the book, Minnie is running the Variety Palace quite badly. Um, this is not her strength. Um, and... She's also kind of hiding away from the world a bit after the events of The Tumbling Girl. But she realises quite early on she can't do that. And there's a series of apparently unconnected cases that all start to converge. And there's also a subplot, which was one of my favourite bits of the book, which involves um, the monkey from the Variety Palace, who has sort of now become Tansy's best friend. Um, <laughs> so there's a little kind of... Um, side plot with that um the third book which um is i have written and um i hope it has a future out in the world is it's kind of about spiritualism so the victorian passion for spiritualism um and but yes the innocence is you know minnie and albert are still they've got a few wrinkles to iron out between them but um they get there in the end and I'm sure that anyone who's read The Tumbling Girl, having left that book on a, a kind of a cliffhanger, will be <laughs> dying to read book two. So, March, did you say it was about in March, Bridget? March, yeah, March, I think so. Okay, well, we'll be looking out for that in March. But, Bridget, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. It's been absolutely lovely. That was Bridget Walsh talking about her historical novel, 
The Tumbling Girl, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.